Happy Labor Day, constant listeners, and I hope you enjoyed the recent long holiday weekend. Observed on the first Monday in September, Labor Day is, of course, an annual celebration of the social and economic achievements of American workers. Got its start in the late 1800s when labor activists pushed for a federal holiday to recognize all those contributions that workers have made to America's strength and its prosperity and well-being. To me, Labor Day, more than anything else, is a celebration of the doers in our society, without who we would not enjoy anything close to the quality of life that we have. There is, I will tell you, some controversy about who founded Labor Day as we know it, at least within a certain family name with slightly different spellings and pronunciations. You see, it's not entirely clear, but two workers can make a solid claim to being the founder of Labor Day. Some records show that in 1882, Peter J. McGuire, General Secretary of the Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners, and a co-founder, by the way, of the American Federation of Labor, he suggested setting aside a day for a general holiday for the laboring classes and to honor those who, from rude nature, have delved and carved all the grandeur that we behold. Now, I love that summation of the individual worker taming nature for the betterment of life and society and the human condition. Great stuff. But Peter McGuire's place in Labor Day history has not gone unchallenged. Many believe that machinist Matthew Mugwire not Peter McGuire, founded the holiday. And recent research seems to support the contention that Matthew McGuire, later the secretary of Local 344 of the International Association of Machinists in Patterson, New Jersey, that he proposed the holiday in 1882 while serving as secretary of the Central Labor Union in New York. Either way, or with either McGuire, President Cleveland signed the law creating a National Labor Day. And you might find interesting that both McGuire and McGuire They both attended the country's first Labor Day parade in New York City that year, and professions like the building trades have been making life better for all of us ever since. I love running down those historical rabbit holes, always interesting, the history of Labor Day of all things. Now, how about a little sports history for our dedication as we shut down summer with Labor Day and enter fall when baseball really starts to get serious? This being episode 120, That number offers an opportunity to achieve two things. First, instead of what we typically do with such dedications, where we honor a sports personality or team or event of high performance or excellence, here we get to dedicate our episode 120 to a historical feat of incompetence. Second, I took some passionate criticism from my Big Apple friends and constant listeners from New York For my dedication way back in episode 69, when I dedicated that episode to the 1969 Lakers in basketball instead of the Miracle Mets in baseball, I was accused of bias against the Mets, and I will admit I am not a fan of those dastardly New York Mets. But fair is fair, and now it is time to right a wrong, at least sort of, because episode 120, we dedicate to the 1962 New York Mets a team that in its first year as a major league franchise set a new level of incompetence by losing 120 games that season, and it's a record that hasn't seen its equal since. Where do you even begin to paint this picture? Well, let me start with the record. Those 62 Mets were 40 and 120. That's a winning percentage of 250, or losing three out of every four games on average across the entire season. 
And the 1962 Mets finished 10th and last in the National League, 60 and a half games behind the National League champion San Francisco Giants. The Mets, they held that distinction in terms of uh, number of games out of first place until the lowly 2018 Baltimore Orioles finished 61 games out of first. And the Mets 120 losses in 1962, that is the most by any Major League Baseball team in one season since the 1899 Cleveland Spiders. Since then, uh, the 2003 Tigers, those 2018 Orioles that I just mentioned, they've come the closest to matching this mark, losing 119 and 115 games respectively. And uh, the Mets starting pitchers in 1962, they recorded just 23 wins all season long. To put that in perspective, Don Drysdale pitching for the Dodgers, who, by the way, was our player dedication for episode number 53. He won 25 games in 1962. That, of course, bested the entire Mets pitching staff for the year. The Mets lost the first nine games of the season, so they started off with a dud. And they went on a 17-game losing streak later that season, and they also put together 11- and 13-game losing streaks. Their longest winning streak of the season was three games. Now, the Mets were managed um, by Hall of Famer Casey Stengel, and they played their home games at the Polo Grounds, which was their temporary home while Shea Stadium was being built in Queens. Despite the team's terrible performance, fans did come out in droves to support them, and their season attendance was over 922,000. That was sixth best in the National League that year. And the season was chronicled quite well by the great writer Jimmy Breslin, the great sports writer with his humorous best-selling book, which was titled, Can't Anybody Here Play This Game? Don't know if you read it. If you haven't, give it a read. You'll love it. And that title of the book came from a remark made by manager Casey Stengel when he sort of got uh, carried away expressing his frustration over the team's poor play that year. Now, speaking of great managers, Casey Stengel, in 1962 with the Mets, he had Rogers Hornsby as a coach on his staff, And his players, he had Roger Craig and Don Zimmer, who became great managers in their own right. I guess sometimes losing is as good of a teacher as winning. And those Mets also sported the future Hall of Famers Richie Ashburn and Gil Hodges. So not all bad and not all inept that year with the Mets. The Mets of that era, they became known as the lovable losers. And they bloomed, of course, into the miracle Mets at the end of the 1960s. So in the end, it all turned out well. But for episode 120, we will dedicate to the historic losing of those Mets of 1962. I hope that satisfies all those New York fans and Gotham constant listeners. But for some reason, I've got my doubts that it will. Oh, well. Now, since we're on the topic of losing in epic fashion, let's start our connections by spending a lion's share of this episode exploring the topic of the accuracy of prediction. Predictions by experts proclamations from experts about the science being settled. Generally, that is a fascinating subject when you peruse the issue over history. From quantum physics to astronomy to medicine, science always evolves, and the then consensus, it ends up getting shattered. But today, the topic is particularly fascinating when it comes to climate change. Expert predictions about climate, they've been around for a long time, longer than you might realize. Climate change alarmism, it didn't start with Al Gore. 
That predates him by decades. And although much has changed over the past 100 years, one thing is not when it comes to climate change alarmism. Its track record of prediction is horrendous. The accuracy rate is worse than the 1962 Mets abysmal winning percentage of 250. And although this will be a fun walk or journey through all these predictions that we're about to go on from the past by the experts, this is also a serious connection to make because the implications of the experts' prediction on policy is going to impact every person and everything. You get it right in this epic story that is America, it rolls on. You get it wrong and the party's over with dark days ahead. So let's get moving. And as an aside, I've pieced together much of this from the web, old articles, current postings of reference prior speeches, and of course, newspapers. It's all out there if you want to delve into individual items. Now we'll start exactly 100 years ago in 1923 with the granddaddy of all mainstream media, the New York Times. In 1923, the Times reported that Arctic ice was melting and they used the phrase, a radical change in climatic conditions and hitherto unheard of temperatures. Now that article went on noting that old glaciers have disappeared and land once covered with field ice is bare. It's eerie how similar that language from the New York Times 100 years ago is to today's language and phraseology from entities like the New York Times. 100 years have passed, that's a century, and fortunately the Arctic is still there. Jump ahead to 1939, and let's listen to what a newspaper in my home state, the Harrisburg Sunday Courier, had to say about climate. All the glaciers in eastern Greenland are rapidly melting. It may without exaggeration be said that the glaciers, like those in Norway, face the possibility of a catastrophic collapse. And then the story went on to state that, last winter, oceans did not freeze over, even on the north coast of Spitsbergen. So this past winter, there was ice observed on the shore where that 1939 article referenced. So, so much for the 1939 predictions. The first chatter that I could find about sea levels rising came from 1947. That's when you first start hearing about sea levels. And a noted geophysicist at the University of California's Geophysical Institute was quoted as speculating about, and I'm using the terms here in the article, the possibility of a prodigious rise in the surface of the ocean with resultant widespread inundation. Does any of that sound familiar? And this scientist went on to ask for something back in 1947 that looks a little spooky when you consider it is exactly what's happened since then. He said, The Arctic change is so serious that I hope an international agency can speedily be formed to study the conditions on a global basis. Wow. And those massive bureaucratic, authoritative, and yet inept global institutions, they've been wreaking havoc on humanity ever since. The periodical this appeared in, by the way, was the West Australian, in case you're interested. Now, more we've got from Australia media, this time from 1952 and from Associated Press down under. And here the article read, the glaciers of Norway and Alaska are only half the size they were 50 years ago. Now, that's a quote from a referenced scientist in the article. And a few years later, in 1955, a Rochester, New York paper said, 
There are now 6 million square miles of ice in the Arctic. There once were 12 million square miles. That's over 70 years after those two articles and expert views from the 1950s. And what do we see today? We find there are still glaciers and ice in Alaska, Norway, and the Arctic in 2023. That theme of uh, the pending doom of Arctic ice, it continued on in the late 1950s uh, with the New York Times once again weighing in, this time from late 1958. And listen closely when I read this quote for magical terms such as scientists say or scientists uh, estimate, some scientists speculate those types of, of terms. You first started to hear that in the 1950s. So here we go, 1958 New York Times. Some scientists estimate that the polar ice pack is 40% thinner and 12% less in area than it was a half century ago. And then the Times went on to note that the thickness of the Arctic ice was about seven feet at that time, again in 1958. Now the thickness of the ice up there today in 2023, it's about the same seven feet. Then came the 1960s. And it seems as if the alarmism from the expert class when it came to climate, it started to evolve around that time. It went from freaking out about the Arctic ice and glaciers into something new, like famine. So let's jump to 1967. I'm one of the most famous and maybe from my perspective, infamous environmentalists of all time is Stanford professor Paul Ehrlich. Uh, he wrote The Population Bomb. Well, that book and its predictions, it turned out to be, they turned out to be quite the dud pun intended, when it came to accurately predicting pain and misery for humanity. He predicted widespread famine by 1975, um, but the Salt Lake Tribune back in 1967, it referenced Ehrlich when saying, it is already too late for the world to avoid a long period of famine. Wrong, wrong, wrong. In 1970, that same Paul Ehrlich predicted the U.S. would be rationing water by 1974, in food by 1980. And that came from the Redlands Daily Facts. Of course, no such rationing was needed, although I will say environmentalists and bureaucrats, they've been trying their damnedest to justify it ever since. Life Magazine, 1970, their Earth Day edition. It read, scientists have solid evidence to support the following predictions. In a decade, urban dwellers will have to wear gas masks to survive air pollution. By 1985, air pollution will have reduced the amount of sunlight reaching the Earth by one half. I guess in hindsight now, life should have stuck to photography and left the scientific and climate predictions alone. Are any of you old enough to remember the scientific experts predicting a pending ice age? That was all the rage, it seems, in the 1970s with mainstream media. And in the summer of 1971, the Washington Post quoted a NASA and Columbia scientist and stated, the world could be as little as 50 or 60 years away from a disastrous new ice age. That scientist, by the way, who was quoted in the article was an atmospheric scientist, what today we call a climate scientist. Well, maybe not we call them that, but instead they call them that. I suspect that uh, climate science isn't much about science these days, but now it's all global warming and oceans boiling not global cooling in ice ages like we had in the 1970s. In early 72, Swedish media said, we have 10 years to stop the catastrophe. Now that came from the mouth in that article in a quote from the United Nations Environmental Secretary. I think that was a harbinger of alarmism and theatrics to come. 
uh, 50 years later and still no catastrophe to stop. Here's one of my favorites, maybe the best for a couple of reasons. See what you think. Late 1972, around Christmas time, Ivy League elites and experts, they end up writing a letter to then-President Nixon, and they wanted to report on a conference attended by dozens of what they called experts. So what the letter said effectively was 42 top American and European investigators concluded a global deterioration of climate by order of magnitude larger than any experienced by civilized mankind is a very real possibility and indeed may be due very soon. And this letter, it went on, the present rate of the cooling seems fast enough to bring glacial temperatures in about a century if continuing at the present pace. Yeah, you heard that right, constant listeners. Ivy League experts and dozens of scientists across the United States and Europe back in 1972, writing to the leader of the free world that catastrophic global cooling was a near certainty. Now, the next generation of that same expert class, they're lecturing leaders today of the exact opposite. And if you put special weight on reported satellite data these days with uh, the reporting of global catastrophe, consider that in 1974, The Guardian, in a story, stated, space satellites show new ice age coming fast. So satellite data is reported by media today to warn of the other end, of course, of the ridiculous spectrum, a boiling age, so to speak. I might have mentioned another periodical's embarrassing call from the 1970s in prior Far Middle episodes, that being Time Magazine in 1974 that used the title of Another Ice Age. Now, at least they applied a question mark at the end of the headline, but the text of the article was even more embarrassing. So check us out, and as you listen to this, superimpose in your mind how similar the current rantings are by the shrill media when it comes to climate. Here we go. Telltale signs are everywhere, from the unexpected persistence and thickness of pack ice in the waters around Iceland, to the southward migration of a warmth-loving creature like the armadillo from the Midwest. Boy, it's the same phraseology, just using the opposite descriptors of today. It's amazing when you think about this racket as it's played out for the past half century. In 1978, getting into the late 1970s now, Leonard Nimoy, a.k.a. Spock, who I will remind you, Spock was the science officer of the Star Trek Enterprise. He's on TV telling us that climate experts believe the next ice age is on its way within a lifetime. Well, today, the same climate experts say catastrophic warming is here to stay unless we obey. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss, as they like to say. Now, another shift occurred toward the end of the 1970s, where talk went from a pending ice age that's going to doom mankind to back toward global warming. And the first example I could find of the flip was in early 1978 from, once again, the New York Times. And here's what it said back then in January of 78. An international team of specialists has concluded from eight indexes of climate that there is no end in sight to the cooling trend of the 30 years, at least in the Northern Hemisphere. So still on on the Ice Age alarmism. But then a year later, in February of 1979, this is where the New York Times suddenly flipped. And they said in February of 79, there is a real possibility that some people now in their infancy will live to a time when the ice at the North Pole will have melted, a change that would cause swift and perhaps catastrophic changes in climate. 
So just like that, within just over a year, the same newspaper goes from irreversible global cooling to unavoidable global warming and cites experts in science and data in support of both. You talk about an unaccountable media in the broken profession of journalism. It started long ago considering this twin set of views from the New York Times. Now, remember that UN head of environmental uh, that we quoted earlier from, what was it, 1972. Here's a little more United Nations theatrics, this time from 1982, a decade later, but from, again, the head of environment. He said if the world didn't change course, it would face an environmental catastrophe which will witness devastation as complete, as irreversible as any nuclear holocaust. Found that in the New York Times. And it reminds me of our current Secretary of State, who recently claimed that climate change is on par with nuclear war as a threat. Maybe we'll talk a little more on that later. The United Nations, they were at it again in the late 1980s, in 1989 to be specific. A senior UN official went on record stating entire nations would be wiped off the face of the earth by rising sea levels if global warming was not reversed by the year 2000. Whoops. And that was from the uh, San Jose Mercury News. Now, that same UN official also said coastal flooding and crop failures would create an exodus of eco-refugees, threatening political chaos. Since that statement, crop yields, by the way, have skyrocketed and famines have plummeted. Oh, well, good to be wrong on those matters, I suppose. At the turn of the century in 2000, a researcher at East Anglia University in the UK predicted snow would stop in southern England and the kids there would never know what it was. It still snows at times during the winter in southern England, in case you're wondering. And for all you pancake and waffle fans, the Washington Post in 2001, they reported how experts worried climate change would wipe out the maple syrup industry in New England within 20 years. So that would be by 2021. In 2022, Vermont produced a record amount of maple syrup, two and a half plus million gallons. And that was a staggering 46% increase from 2021. Another predictive swing and miss by the self-described experts. Why do we keep listening? 2004 saw one of my favorite predictions. This one reported by The Guardian and allegedly from a secret Pentagon report. I don't know if any of you remember this secret Pentagon report. And the report allegedly said climate change would drop Britain into a Siberian climate, whatever that is, by the year 2020. And it also said major European cities would sink into the sea. Here we are in 2023, and Britain is still there, but not the Siberian weather. Are these the same Pentagon experts who found weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? Might be. How about a prediction from the high priest of climate change, Big Al, Uncle Al, Al Gore? In early 2006, he basically says the world will reach a point of no return within 10 years, which would have been 2016, if, of course, drastic measures to reduce greenhouse gases were not embraced immediately. And yet here we are still standing. And even if we're doomed, I guess it's past the point of no return, which was 2016. So I suppose there's no need for those drastic actions after all. CanWest News Service in Canada in 2007, they said the Arctic Ocean would be ice-free as soon as 2010 or 2015, still ice up there in 2023. 
And uh, this, this walk, this review, it can't be complete without a little taste of the climate czar, Mr. Carey. Here he is in the Huffington Post in his op-ed. Scientists project the Arctic will be ice-free in the summer of 2013. Not in 2050, but four years from now. So he publishes this op-ed in 2009, and there's still ice at the Arctic. Media and elites, they continue to treat Americans as rubes. Enough is enough yet. And in 2015, the New York Times, since we started with them, let's finish with them. They ran an op-ed titled, The End of Snow? And it fretted about Western U.S. snowpack. And since then, the past decade, it's seen no significant decline in Western regional snowfall. I hope that uh, you enjoyed that century's worth of a walk through different climate change crystal balls. Going through those hundred years of predictions by experts and elites under their claim banner of science and as the authority when it comes to climate, I think it betrays a few key conclusions and learnings that I wanted to share. First and most importantly, scientific consensus, it was never worth a damn and it's still not worth a damn. Science isn't about consensus. The experts claimed consensus in the past as we saw and they were dead wrong time and again. They kept on claiming consensus, or worse yet, certainty, after the missed predictions. We need to be less reverent. We need to learn to be less reverent to such claims from self-proclaimed experts. And the second learning, based on this track record of horrible predictive accuracy, the last thing we should be doing is setting policies that impact decades and trillions of dollars to aim for something we should have zero confidence in being able to accurately know. That's not being rational. Third learning, from my perspective, where's the accountability? When a doctor kills patients one after another on the operating table, the doctor's going to lose the license to practice medicine. When a lawyer can't file a lawsuit correctly, suit after suit, they're going to be disbarred. And if a corporate executive makes misleading statements over and over, they're going to face serious sanction or worse. Why then does this small community of supposed experts enjoy default respect bordering on infallibility as if they were popes or gods, even after they're dead wrong time and again. What should be the consequence of an expert who yells fire in the policy theater if there is indeed no fire? And consequences professionally, financially, and so on. Last uh, lesson for me, where the heck did the journalists go? What I just ran through, it's out there for all to find and read and report on. And it's interesting and timely, particularly for the stakes being as high as they are with today's policy moves on billions of people. The once noble profession of journalism, it's an embarrassing joke today. I enjoyed uh, this deeper dive for episode 120. Might do a few more of these formats in coming episodes for other topics beyond uh, climate change predictions. I've got a few topics in mind that I think you'll enjoy. Now, we close with paying tribute to the person who I hinted at a few episodes ago when we were talking Aretha Franklin as being the only female singer and vocalist that could rival the Queen of Soul, and that would be fellow Detroiter Diana Ross. Well, this week back in 1980, Miss Ross topped the Billboard charts with her single Upside Down, great song, and a fitting song title for this episode's main topic, 
of the upside-down world of expert predictions when it comes to climate change. As a few lines in the lyrics go, Respectfully, I say to thee, I'm aware that you're cheating. The so-called experts, they keep cheating, and they keep getting it wrong. But we keep putting them on pedestals as the definitive authority. Upside down for sure. Okay, gotta run, but don't fret, because with the far middle, there's always going to be next week.